Hello, everyone, and welcome to the uh, final edition of JM Rewind for 2017. You're listening to the Nahum Siegel Network. JM Rewind gives us an opportunity to check out some of the recent guests and interesting interviews that we've had on JM in the AM. We will start with the big Pesach news, Pesach 2018. Doug Sokloff, the legendary Dougie, is uh, going to be leading a program in Las Vegas. We are proud to be part of it. He was uh, in our studio recently to discuss some of the recent news regarding that Pesach program. Doug Sokloff with the um, Sokloff Pesach Experience on this edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. We know him as Dougie. We know him as uh, one of the most effective people in the history, frankly, of delicious kosher food and um, restaurateurship, if there's a word like that. And his name is Doug Sokloff, and he joins us live in studio here at JM and the AM. Doug, good morning to you. Good morning, Nachum. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. Nice to have you here. Great and to uh, be there. This is not the announcement. This is not the announcement because this has already been announced. If you're watching, this is what I'm about to remind you about. This announcement's been made already, but give me an opportunity to reiterate. Doug Sokloff, the Douglas Sokloff Experience presents Passover 2018 at the Weston Lake Las Vegas Resort and Spa. The entire hotel is going to be kosher le Pesach. It's a fabulous Yom Tov atmosphere, and could you imagine you get to spend the entire week of Pesach in Las Vegas. Uh, this is a, com- a recently completed $50 million renovation. All the rooms and suites are brand new. There'll be exceptional catering with cuisine by Prestige caterers and there is an entire list of wonderful amenities that people will be enjoying during the holiday of Pesach. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Thanks for bringing this to the community. People from the East Coast, the West Coast, and around the world are going to be joining you for Pesach 2018. I am proud to say that my family will be part of Passover 2018 with the Douglas Sokloff experience. Can't wait. So excited to we have are looking, you in the family. We are looking forward to anything to do in Vegas, Doug. Is there any any entertainment there or things that the family will find family-friendly that you know of? Absolutely. Absolutely no shortage of things to do in and around uh, Las Vegas. I'm already giddy on the Vegas scene. There I'm, you go. I'm already happy knowing I'll be there the first week of April. And especially, like especially with four days of Cholamoid, so oh, much to boy. do in and around and... Cholamoid will be a Sunday night through Thursday afternoon. Absolutely. That's amazing. Yes. yes. Sunday night through Thursday afternoon. What a place to be to enjoy a week like that. And everything you'd expect from the professionally run day camp to the great scholars and residents, some of whom we'll discuss today, um, a, solma, a, a wonderful kosher wine sommelier. Who you know very well. Who we know well will be there. Uh, poolside barbecue. Great tea room. Uh, fun-filled water sports, fitness instructor, everything you'd expect, all part of Pesach 2018 at the Weston Lake Las Vegas Resort and Spa. Phone number 1-800-826-5645, or you can go to the web, SokloffExp.com, Sokloff, S-O-C-L-O-F-E-X-P.com for information. We still haven't gotten to the big announcement yet. Yes, this information I've given you already has been uh, distributed widely throughout the entire Jewish world. Nice reaction, by the way, right? Am I right that you've gotten great, a great reaction? To great this? reaction. Uh, w- one of the most interesting facts so far is because of the location yeah. of uh, the West Coast, right. uh, Las Vegas, 
I, you, you hear from people really from all over the country. Uh, I joke, I'm working like on all different time zones uh, from the country, whether people you know, have kids that are in uh, Denver, in, uh, Houston, Dallas, uh, of course from the East Coast, uh, Los Angeles, and people are and really using it as a great uh, gathering space. Yeah, because essentially, if we regard Chicago as the convention center of America, Vegas is certainly the entertainment and fun center of America. So. A- 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 absolutely, and people um, who call and they inquire and say, "Oh, you know, what can we do on Halloween?" I'm like, obviously, you know, twenty minute twenty twenty minutes away, you have the Las Vegas Strip, the you know, incredible things to do there for for not only children but adults for everybody. And then, I say you go out of the right of the hotel, you end up at the Las Vegas Strip to the left. You're 10 minutes and 30 minutes away from um, Lake Mead and Hoover Dam, two and a half hours from uh, Grand Canyon, plus tons of uh, hiking and trails and and water sports, uh, all just in the immediate area for those who like more uh, outdoors, adventurous stuff, indoor stuff. There's uh, everything to do. And, of course, uh, at the hotel itself, the hotel is a full resort with Every activity people could possibly possibly imagine, and within you know within our program, you mentioned uh, the uh, Gabriel Geller who will be the right. wine sommelier uh, that people know extremely extremely He's well. Been here, sure. Where uh, we'll have da- uh, Daniel Tamir, who's a very well known basketball coach yeah. from Step It Up. Um, he's, I saw him this week. He's uh, an assistant coach at the YU Max. Exactly. Yeah. So he's extremely extremely uh, well known. Hani Tigman from New Jersey. Uh, we'll be having the first ever uh, spin studio um at any pesach program and this is something that we're bringing in uh which will be great you because know, you and i are very into fitness we're very into you know that could always be the next uh <laughs> the next show our challenge <laughs> you know we're very see, into getting out there and getting as fit listen, as possible in fact doug has offered amazing cuisine for god knows how many meals straight and i've sort of and you and i have discussed i've sort of said you know what doug maybe we'll take it easy when it comes to the food <laughs> uh, listen that this way we could uh you know, get uh, a little pre-training and spinning, and uh, be the rock stars uh, in, in in the spinning studio. But yeah, uh, yeah. that's uh, my plan exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but also a, a, a very heavy emphasis on offering an enormous amount of uh, fitness classes and uh, walking tours, uh, power walking. You know, a little bit of Man. everything for everybody. And of course, the the day camp is because uh, Doug has got West Coast crowd coming that's yeah. really into the fitness <laughs> it, and power walking. And yeah, that. and it's uh, the direction where everybody everybody's looking to uh, to to go. And uh, yeah. you know, even on Pesach, people are you know want to keep their daily routine going to the best that they can. Right, that's true. Uh, we have two phenomenal individuals who will be running uh, the day camp, uh, really just with an enormous amount of experience, whether they've done. Pesach programs, day camps, um, great, uh, great, two, two really great individuals with a heavy emphasis of uh, a lot of activities for the children during the, the day and then evening uh, programming as well to keep the kids busy all the time. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and uh, just uh, a lot a lot going on in a very great Yuntif atmosphere. Doug Sokloff is here. Join us. The Siegel family is one of many families that's going to be part of Pesach 2018 at the Weston Lake Las Vegas Resort and Spa, uh, information 1-800-826-5645. There's also a website, Sokloff EXP, for Douglas Sokloff Experience, Sokloff, S-O-C-L-O-F-E-X-P.com. You can get all the information you want. Prestige Caterers provides the uh, cuisine, and we're looking forward to an amazing Pesach. Anybody who wants the um, 
Seagull Children map that they've already created of the Grand Canyon road trip. We're more than happy to share that with everybody. Absolutely. That's because, amazing. as you just indicated, two, three hours away, you got the Grand Canyon. Yep. Yeah, it's a perfect uh, opportunity to uh, to get in the van and just uh, head on over. Uh, so much to do. I think uh, there's more to do than days that are open for people to be able. to When I do my things. Grand Canyon trip, will there be a matzah sandwich available for me to schlep along, Doug? Yes or no? <laughs> as much as much as you want. Because if there's anything I love, it's that matzah sandwich, right? Are those the best? There will be no shortage of uh, matzah or, <laughs> or any, anything else. Or, or, any, or anything else. But uh, absolutely uh, for sure. And like you said, uh, mapping things out. People are calling, inquiring about you know other activities that there are to do. People don't even realize how close the uh, airport is. You know, a lot of people because of how Halamoid is falling out, right. um, running back to either school, work, so on and so forth. And, you know, Las Vegas has hundreds and hundreds of direct flights to all over the, you know, the state and um, all over the country. country yeah. So people are really utilizing uh, that. And uh, obviously to the West Coast, uh, to Los Angeles, it's only a three, three and a half hour drive. Um, so there's just so many benefits. And, and another great thing about... Um, Las Vegas this time of year, uh, Pesach time, is that the weather is 80 degrees, perfect, no rain every yeah. single day. And, uh, and no guarantee you'll have that in this area, that's for sure. Well, and not only that, and also with uh, you know, the time difference, the, you, know, you have the second Seder, which is uh, you know, Monte Shabbos. It's, it's not as late as it is in other parts of, of the country, right. uh, the, way, the, the way sunrise, sunset. Uh, work in Las Vegas. A lot of benefits. A a lot of benefits. And obviously, as you mentioned, the whole entire property is uh, kosher for Pesach. That might be the biggest thing for those who ponder if they should go away for Pesach or not, because I know the difference. I've been in both types of programs, and the the type that you're running this year is really a comfortable yunt of atmospheres. Absolutely. And and, um, that is is the goal, is to build the most beautiful yunt of atmosphere for for the families and... um, you know, I've been I've been very successful over the last few years of uh, being involved with the program in uh, in Orlando. Right, and you know I always say for you know the month or six weeks after uh, Pesach, people are always sending me little thank you notes saying you know thank you for giving my family the best uh, yuntov. Yeah, that you, you possibly know, to be, can. To be fair to you, I introduced you in terms of your uh, restaurant tourship and the impact you've made in the kosher food world. Uh, I was uh, remiss in not mentioning that that you're, you're people think that this is a first year program. The reality is this is being done by somebody and coordinated by somebody who's got a tremendous number of years under his belt at this point, and people should know that. Correct. So, and and also that this hotel for for many years right. did have a uh, Pesach program. So that the people, staff there knows what we're all yeah, about. Yeah, the, the, the right. staff knows, um, and and the the hotel lays out in, incredibly well for a Pesach program. And it could be from 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 your room to the shul to. Right. Uh, ballroom outside, inside, uh, all over, two three minutes, just walking from everywhere, and uh, the host, uh, the hotel staff is uh, very, very. Um, when I was just down there this week, they want to know when the Arif needs to go up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Arif meets Vegas. Yes, like so uh, they're, they're 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 very very excited, and uh, you know there is there absolutely no casino on this property, um, which once again just helps uh, create a. a, a even nicer, just to be able to keep the flow right. of Yontif atmosphere. And um, like we said earlier, just uh, when, when parents know that they're going to have a great day camp for their kids uh, yeah. to be busy, and Daniel Tamir, the sommelier, the, uh, the fitness classes, there's an enormous, enormous amount that's going to be going on. 
Um, and we are sure those that want to partake and keep themselves busy, but also the way the hotel lays out with magnificent outdoor areas, outdoor sitting areas, fire pits, swimming pools. You want to sit back and just relax, uh, you know, it'd be great. And, uh, you know, we look forward to uh, having everybody. All right, Passover 2018. Just look at the pictures, everybody. You'll see exactly what we're talking about. The, the place is remarkable. It looks remarkable. Um, we're on Facebook Live, Nahum Siegel Network, Instagram, onlysimplis.com. Uh, our live presentation of what's uh, a big announcement. You'd think at this point we've gotten to the big announcement and covered everything, but we have not covered everything. Um, we have a uh, an, an amazing list of scholars and residents, and you felt rightfully so that it has become such an impressive list. It's worth it for you to come in and discuss it. Uh, you want me to run through some of the names that have already been announced? Or? Uh, sure. And then, and then I'll leave the latest news to you. Yeah. Um, or by Ellie Schwartz is going to be coming, uh, co-director of the JLIC at the University of Maryland. And we've heard on the air from the JLIC directors how great a job they're doing down there in Maryland. Unbelievable. Or by uh, Eric Goldman, a community co-ed educator in Chicago, Illinois. Professor Michael Birnbaum, very familiar name to this audience, noted author and producer in L.A. Or by Arye Suffren. Head of school at the Eula Boys School out in Los Angeles, or Baruch Suffering, the head of school at the Hillel Academy in Los Angeles, or by Joshua Lookstein, or by Lookstein, of course, a name extremely familiar to uh, everybody in this area and beyond. Head of school up at Westchester Day School. In fact, it's funny when Sandy Schmueli, who works for him, was here earlier in the week. We were mentioning her by Lookstein throughout the show. And now uh, you've secured and, and really got confirmation just in the early part of this week. From a, from a very prominent scholar in residence, not that the others aren't, the others of course are, but there's something about this one that always uh, increases the buzz in the Jewish world. Tell us who's going to be coming Pesach 2018 to Las Vegas. Yeah, so we're, we're, we're very pleased to announce and so honored uh, that uh, Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik and his Woo. family uh, will be joining us um, in Las Vegas. The man who, if you told people at 3 a.m. he's lecturing, he'd get a crowd of 500. Uh, no question about basically. it. Basically. Basically, no, that's what it's about. No question about he it. He appeared and, in Flatbush a couple of Saturday nights ago. They, they couldn't. They, had, they didn't have enough room anymore. Yeah, and, and even a couple of people who I mentioned it to over um, the last day uh, informally are like, oh, that's unbelievable. Like, Puts I, you over the top. Huh? I don't really, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I don't really go to hear lecturers, but... You know, for him, I'm really going to uh, go, and uh, it's a major attraction. Very honored uh, that he and his family will will be joining us. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if you saw the video, I'm sure you did, of, of him at the White House. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, the Hanukkah it was ceremony. amazing. It was really amazing. Um, and I think that just uh, gives people a little bit of a taste of, of uh, the great knowledge and his ability and, uh, you know, how, how, how much he's loved at his shul and how much he's loved up at Yeshiva University and, and, and all over the country, all over the world. Uh, so really excited, and it's a, it's an incredible uh, lineup, um, not only of scholars and residents, um, which which plays a very important uh, factor into uh, a Pesach program, uh, but all in you know inclusive of everything that we have going on, um, and like I said earlier about creating just a beautiful Yantif atmosphere. You know we have uh, nine ten days. You go into this. It's it's much different than other things. You, you have to have it right from the beginning. We have formed amazing relationships with other families over Pesach programs. I mean, yes. it's, a, it's a long time, nine, ten days, long yep. time, nice intimate atmosphere, a lot of relaxation, so you get a chance to really schmooze, and it's it's just a wonderful environment. And as uh, Doug just announced, the big news of the day, everybody out there, it is big news. Rabbi Mayor Soloveitchik, who is the Rabbi of Congregation Sherat Israel, the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue in New York, and director of the Strauss Center, for Torah and Western Thought at Yeshiva University will be spending the majority, let's put it that way, the majority of the Passover holiday in Las Vegas with the Douglas Sokloff experience. And that is great news, and I'm sure 
will just increase the number of people who want to speak to you today. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's great. And uh, whether it's by email or calling, whatever. What I email know. address do you want them to use, Doug? Uh, info at SockloftExp.com. And Sockloft is S-O-C-L-O-F as in Frank, E-X-P. Info at SockloftExp.com. Info at S-O-C-L-O-F-E-X-P.com. Big announcement. All right, Mayor Soloveitchik and a whole host of amazing scholars and residents plus all the people in charge of all the amenities that Doug described. Those those are the folks who so far are signed up and will be part of Pesach at the Westin Lake Las Vegas Resort and Spa. Go online and look at the pictures of this place. It's amazing. Prestige caterers will be doing the catering, and the Siegel family is enthusiastically looking forward to being there. Um, uh, Pesach 5778. Uh, Doug, I thank you. Thank you so much. I want to thank you. I want to thank uh, everybody at Only Simplest. Yeah, thank, thank my little production Simplest. team of Ruthie Bodner. Thank you, production um, team. And uh, it's great, uh, always great to be down here. And uh, to your staff, uh, thank you for being so accommodating and welcoming. Thank you so much. That was my conversation with Doug Sokloff as we get ready for Pesach 2018 in Las Vegas. A pleasure to be part of that uh, amazing team that he has uh, put together for that uh, Pesach experience. Uh, last week, we had an opportunity to speak to Dr. Ross Marin, Dr. David Ross Marin of the uh, Center for Anxiety, centerforanxiety.org. We had a chance to discuss some of the uh, relevant topics when it comes to parenting and anxiety. Dr. David Ross Marin on this edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Dr. David Ross Marin, of course, is the founder of the Center for Anxiety. He's been a guest of ours uh, prior uh, to today's visit here at JM and the AM. I'd go through the whole resume, but my gosh, how much can I impress the audience with, uh, with Dr. Ross Merritt's credentials? I hope you don't mind me saying that. I do. <laughs> Very much so. Your parents, I'm sure, I assure you, don't mind. <laughs> anyway, who's, who am I to argue? Um, centerforanxiety.org is the website, centerforanxiety.org. And let me point out a couple of things where we begin our conversation. Number one is they continue to provide Different support groups at their older varieties of loca- older variety of locations, Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn, the West Fifty Seventh Street location in Manhattan, Rockland County up on Route Fifty Nine in Suffern, um, including the OCD support groups, um, their lunch and learn programs, and a whole host of community events, including this coming Sunday night, where a lot of people have uh, in our community uh, set aside time to get involved in community events. Um, I guess that's one way of putting it. The Center for Anxiety and the Base Medrash Arachayim Community Learning Center invite you to participate in the second lecture of a five-part lecture series given by Dr. Gabriel Hafnung. It'll be an interactive workshop discussing effective parenting in the modern world, what science and psychology have to say. This will be happening starting at 8.45 p.m. at the Base Medrash Arachayim on Forche Road up in Muncie, New York. They'll discuss scientific parenting, good and bad versus effective and ineffective, uh, they'll talk about skills of effective parents, catch your child being good and beyond, and what the bottom line is with punishment. Boy, oh boy, I have to start rethinking everything I've done as a parent. Uh, <laughs> go to centerforanxiety.org, centerforanxiety.org, or dial 888-837-7473, 888-837-7473. Welcome back to JM and the AM. Thanks for having me. You, you followed a perfect guest for the topic of anxiety as we were discussing yeshiva tuition. Huh. I mean, what makes people more anxious in the Jewish world than that, huh? No kidding. A financial crunch is uh, certainly a context for uh, for anxiety issues. Yeah, no question about that. <laughs> and um, this um, this lecture series that's uh, that's happening up in 
Rockland County is continuing on Sunday night. Just when I look at the topics that are being discussed, I only half-jokingly say that I have to reassess my own parenting skills because you bring up stuff here that, that frankly, we either never thought of or never thought of implementing. Now, now again, I would, ho- I would like to thank that, that you know, parents out there, including myself, do catch our child being good, which I assume means pointing out to kids, you know, positive reinforcement when they're doing something uh, the right way. Right. But, but I never saw it, you know, addressed as a, as a topic like that. Well, a lot of what we're doing in our program here, which is part of our innovation, are really clear, uh, easy to implement strategies that make a massive, massive difference. And reduce anxiety. And reduce anxiety, among other things. Right. Um, and the other thing is they can reduce anxiety in the kids right. because we've seen such a major uptick in uh, anxiety and related concerns among children and adolescents. Um, and the parenting and also school-based education are a huge part of that in preventing it. Reminding me of what you told us last time. I mean, your your center is specifically for adults, or are are there programs? Oh no, for, we have plenty of programs for children. Children can participate as young as three, as three years old. Yeah, one of our programs, which is pretty innovative, called Parent Child Interaction Therapy. Did I tell you about? That? I don't, I don't think I mentioned it last time. Parent Child Interaction Therapy is pretty cool. The idea behind it is that it's for it's. I'll tell you, what it's for. Firstly, is children between about ages of three and let's say seven or eight who are having behavioral problems. Not necessarily anxiety, right. in fact, but uh, that's, that's what the treatment's for. And um, what we do is we bring in the parent with the child, and we have them interacting together, and the parent has a Bluetooth in their ear, and a therapist is behind a one-way mirror coaching the parent live in how to interact with their child in an effective way and shaping the parent's behavior. It's incredibly effective because, you know, previously it was done as a lot of play therapy. Right. Play therapy with kids. Take your kid. Role playing and all that. Exactly. Put them with a therapist for an hour a week. Right. And how much of that is going to generalize? The kid is going to forget within 10 seconds of leaving your office what's going on. And the data is very clear that it just wasn't, it's not effective. But why is the in the ear process for a parent more effective right parents want to learn how to become better parents especially when they have an out-of-control kid they need clear specific guidance in what to do and having somebody a bug in the ear approach with a therapist a live therapist coaching them and what to do it's like a dream come true for a lot of these parents and it generalizes they learn in one hour a week sometimes a little more a little less right what to do outside of the therapy room, and it's amazingly effective. What if uh, what if the child does not exhibit their out of controlness while this session is that's going on? Part that's actually one of the things we <laughs> believe it or not we hope for that. What? Yeah, I'll tell you why. Because then the then we get to coach the parent live in a difficult situation, and that's specifically what we want. That, to well, that's what I'm saying. You want you want the kid to act out. Yeah. Well, I'm saying what if the kid not does really. not does we, not exhibit the out of controlness? Oh well, we have our we have ways to, <laughs> ways, to ways to get them to do <laughs> get so. Them to, to get them. Well, it doesn't take much. I mean, when you have a kid who's not listening to parental right. authority, all you have to do is give a command, right. and if the child's not going to listen, one other aspect of PCIT though is that parents need, we need a protracted period of building a relationship with the child, and a protracted period I mean like six to eight weeks. Okay, right. we're not talking about you know years um, before something like discipline can occur, and there's really two stages of treatment. There's a uh, child-directed approach, which is forming a better relationship with a child. And then there's a parent-directed approach where parents learn to give commands and children learn to to listen to them on the first time. You know, one of the topics on this list is what's the bottom line with punishment. Good question. Um, now we'll see how 2017 you are. 
because I'm I'm sure today some would argue that punishment is completely uh, you know useless or close to useless. Let's put it that way. Or maybe the, the traditional punishments are close to useless. What what are we going to learn? You know, Sunday night uh, about punishment from this session. I mean, there's there's no question that positive reinforcement is more effective right. in shaping behavior. That, that that data is very clear. But when dealing with something that deserves punishment, there are there for sure is a context for punishment. There is there are cases where you have to use punishment in incidents, and if parents don't do that, then that could cause a significant damage, frankly, to the parent-child relationship. Right. But it has to occur in um, uh, within a, a close relationship with the child. What feels lo- like a loving right. environment. Correct. And what's often lacking is that love and that connection, and therefore punishing without that in place can be even more dangerous, and that's what you see today. Yeah. I see a lot of things today. Yeah, and then some. It's a, it's a complicated society we have, isn't it not? <laughs> I, I will tell you firsthand, based on what comes through our door, but uh, very complicated. And everything out there is obviously in our community. The, the, not that that point has to really be made anymore. We used to make it so often 10, 20 years ago, but now it's like you know, it's so commonplace that we know that every, everything we read about is happening in our community as well. So. Yeah, I'll even speak to that point because I've done quite a bit of uh, empirical research, scientific studies on what is mental health like within the Jewish community and even how does that compare to outside. Um, and a fair number of published studies, uh, peer-reviewed you know, works that I, my colleagues and I, um, Dr. Tzvi Piratinsky, who is at uh, now is at Toro College, and we we've worked together um, quite a bit on that. We've found that levels of anxiety and depression and other issues are the same within the Jewish community outside, um, which is actually pretty good. Considering you think, you think it might be more, you think right? it'd be more. You know, when you take into account tuitions right. and, and other uh, and other major stressors, large that, families, everything. yeah, large family sizes. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of stressors um, on us. Also, just uh, being from a different culture and right. trying to taking off Yom Tov and Shabbos, and right. it's two day Yom Tov here in, in the United States, and you know having financial considerations on, on top of that. So that's a very significant stress. So you would actually expect more in many ways. We don't find that, but we do find the same levels. And therefore, we need treatments. 100%. Uh, centerforanxiety.org is the website. Now, this is the time of year because, I mean, look, in our community, obviously, we're not, we're not celebrating things this time of year outside of Hanukkah, which just ended. Uh, but because of the media push and the environment that we're in, a lot of people are talking about recommitment. A lot of people over the next few days, you'll hear it, every, all of us will hear it, talking about what they call New Year's resolutions, right. a new start, a new beginning. And then, of course, as most people will admit, by January 2nd, those resolutions have been completely forgotten. Right. Forgot about whether they've been implemented or not. People forget they even made them. Right. Is, is renewed commitment to a discipline or to something that's important to people out there important in solving anxiety issues? Hugely important. There's no question that people who make firm, clear commitments um, do better and end up getting closer to their ultimate goals in life than, than people who do not. Um, but there are a couple of uh, issues there. Sometimes the way that they make the commitment or the, you know, sometimes it seems like a commitment, but it's not really. Right. Those New Year's, I'll say a New Year's resolution mm-hmm. can be um, effective or ineffective depending on the way that it is made. And um, I, I guess what's most obvious would be the more unrealistic you resolve, the more unrealistic your resolution is, the more likely it's never going to be accomplished. That's definitely one piece of it, is that it has to be realistic. Right. Um, there are a couple things that are... there. One thing is that even more is actually making a commitment. 
um, being very clear about the fact that somebody wants to change. Some people have dreams and hopes, and I mean, everybody has dreams mm-hmm. and hopes and ideas about what they, you know, want to do. Um, but uh, if it's not something that's that uh, a person has actually firmly resolved that they want to change, it's not going to happen. Right. All right. So, are there tips for uh, you know for people to approach this? Is there a yeah, uh, guidelines you would give them? Absolutely. Um, firstly, just a little bit of background information is interesting. If you look at uh, um, you know Google search terms in uh, in December and January, <laughs> yeah, guess besides, the top two besides holiday party, <laughs> right? Guess guess what the top Don't two tell are. Me resolution. Well, pretty close. Diet and oh gym. My gosh, is that hilarious? Yeah. Um, but you, so people are thinking about change. They're thinking, I mean, that's a good global index of, uh, you know, people are thinking about making some sort of lifestyle change, but then take a guess whether people actually gain or lose weight over the course of time. I mean, I would guess of course, the majority gain. Of course. Yeah. The New England Journal of Medicine reported a couple of years ago. Oh, I hope this isn't a large number. It's bad. <laughs> Between the ages of 25 and 44, the annual annual increase in weight um, is about 3.4% for men and 5.2% for women. No matter what their resolution is at the end of the year. So what does that tell you? What does it tell you where mm. people are going? Ineffective. Um, yeah, at least a couple pounds uh, a year that people are putting on. So um, there is uh, there is some s- s- psychological science, though, that tells us about how to not make those ineffective solutions. There's a really um, wonderful and and famous psychologist named Dr. John Norcross. Mm-hmm. He's from uh, University of Scranton. He actually came to our office to give a talk uh, a couple uh, a couple months ago. When was that? I think it was November. Um, our very close friend and colleague, Dr. Chaim Siegel, um, he was uh, the one who, was, who brought him in, and we were very fortunate to be able to hear Dr. Norcross. He didn't present on this data, but there's a study that he published, which was pretty cool. Um, Basically, there, there. You can group down people who make resolutions. New Year's unresolution. It was specifically on New Year's resolutions. You can group them into three categories. There are people who are not interested in change. Right. Fair enough. There are people who are thinking about change and contemplating it, and then there are people who actually make a firm resolve to change, who decide in their mind, "I am going to be a different person." Um, the people who aren't interested, do they change? I would think no, not. <laughs> of course not. The people who contemplate, what happens two weeks later? Right, they're all, they're right. off the wagon. Within six months, only four percent of them have made any substantial change, right. which is actually pretty high if you think right. about it. But okay, it shows the power of contemplation alone. But four percent is not exactly, you know, maybe might not even be better than chance, frankly. Right. Of the people who make a firm resolution, um, at six months, it's still it's it's only forty six percent. Um, but that's still 10 times more. Mm-hmm. So this idea of just making a firm commitment, it's like chuva, right? right. It's a process of repentance. Right. In many make, cases, it lasts for a while. It actually does. Right. It does last, making that commitment. Why is this tied into anxiety? Why is this a, an anxiety reducer? Oh, there are so many reasons why. You know, What would be the most obvious one? Like, why? What, what, what is it about commitment or about being in, in, on a habitual program that's, that's new for you? Uh, that would reduce anxiety. Well, I'll tell it to you. I'll tell it to you like this. Um, one of the things that makes people anxious is when they avoid. People who avoid circumstances that are uncomfortable mm. tend to be a lot more anxious. In fact, one of the reasons I think why people are so anxious today is specifically because we're so driven to avoid pain and to pursue pleasure. People want to feel comfortable, right. and that pursuit of comfort makes um, 
cre- creates avoidance, and then fear settles in in the context of that avoidance. Right. So when people make a commitment, it's scary. They actually are facing a fear like, I have to do this. And they're not avoiding. They're, they're approaching what they want to do in life. And they're moving forward. So the, the irony is that when you make a commitment, you experience a little bit more anxiety in the short run. Mm-hmm. And that experience of anxiety helps you to feel more calm in the long run. Boy, oh boy, I'll tell you. We are one complicated machine, aren't we? That's, uh, I, we love it. That's, the, this the, is our the job. Human, the human being. This Very is our job. Uh, the Center for Anxiety presents this coming Sunday night up in Muncie, New York at the Base Medrash Archive in Part 2 of their five-part interactive workshop, What Science and Psychology Have to Say About Effective Parenting in the Modern World. All of you are invited, of course. Uh, centerforanxiety.org is the website, centerforanxiety.org. It starts 8.45 p.m. up in Muncie, New York, this coming Sunday. Phone number 888-837-7473, 888-837-7473. I apologize that we're uh, uh, practically out of time, but I do want to mention that the OCD support groups, the lunch and learn programs, what am I forgetting? The um, There are other support groups as well that are going on, correct? Well, the biggest thing is our uh, free consults. That free consults. 30 minutes, people can call up and speak to any member of my staff, and uh, we're happy to to talk to you about any concern that you might have under the entire sun. Just be sure to mention the Nachum Siegel show. Yes, use my name, folks. <laughs> Already it gets you a free 30 minutes. How do you like that? 888-837-7473 is the number. And again, it's centerforanxiety.org. Dr. David Ross Marin is, of course, the founder and director of all four locations of the Center for Anxiety. I thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me again. And we will have an opportunity to speak more about all this. Looking forward. Yeah, what's more What's more of a wonderful topic than anxiety? <laughs> it is just uh, it is just something that we all have to face up to. That was my conversation with Dr. David Ross Marin of the Center for Anxiety, Information Center for Anxiety.org. Last Friday, I had an opportunity to speak with Jake Novak, a contributing editor at, the, excuse me, senior editorial columnist at CNBC. And uh, we had an opportunity to discuss Jerusalem, Israel, the economy, Bitcoin, and much, much more. Jake Novak of CNBC on the recent edition of JM and the AM on this edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, Jake Novak is with us live via telephone. He is senior editorial columnist at CNBC and joins us on this Friday morning broadcast. Jake, welcome back to JM and the AM. Always great to be here with you, Nachum. Thank you. I greatly appreciate that. The United Nations General Assembly voted 128 to 9 with a bunch of abstentions on Thursday, yesterday, in favor of a resolution condemning President Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Jake Novak, what was your reaction? Well, you know, I, I felt like I was Avraham complaining with, uh, to God about saving Saddam. I mean, it was really bad. We knew that this was a, a basically a, a corrupt organization. But, you know, we had a few more abstentions than we were used to having in these kinds of resolutions. I don't know if we can consider that good news or not. Um, I guess it's somewhat encouraging. I think what it really means is not so much a great love for Israel, but it does mean that the U.S. cloud is still somewhat strong, um, and Trump might be getting through to a few more countries 
And as we've seen in the Middle East here and there, when Israel makes a new friend or a new sort of cold peace with someone, every time that happens, there is a little bit of um, progress. So maybe it isn't as, you know, the news isn't all bad, but of course, it, it's incredibly depressing. The, the, the UN has become about 50% of what it does, at least officially, it seems to be anti-Israel activities. And oh, no. what a waste of time, money, and all the good things they could be doing that they're not doing. Yeah, what's interesting about the, about the roster of countries in the three categories in favor of the resolution condemning the U.S., those against and those who abstain, is that in the column of in favor, France, Germany, and Japan, just for example, couldn't, couldn't have the wherewithal to at least abstain from the vote, which is unbelievable when you think about it. And then, you know, Canada abstains. Czech Republic, who you'll recall, were the first to say that they would seriously consider following the U.S. lead of moving their own embassy to Jerusalem, even they abstained from this vote. Yeah, you know, I mean, that just goes to show that there's still political fence straddling going on. That's nothing new. Um, it, there's just a tremendous amount of cowardice, and a big part of cowardice is just not accepting the truth. And that is something that we've seen in the U.N. for a very long time. There's a long way to go. But, I, I, you know, again, those people, I, I think you get a feeling in the American um, punditry that this was a bad thing, because even though, even the more realistic ones, so say even though they know the U.N. is kind of corrupt, why would you want to bring this out into the open? It's so embarrassing, and it, it it embarrasses the United States. It embarrasses those countries. And I, I think that, you know, if there's one thing we've learned from the election of Donald Trump is that some of these things that we've accept, accepted as the new normal, well, we've got to accept a little bit of terrorism. We've got to accept a little bit of this kind of political chicanery and corruption. Uh, I think a lot more people in the regular voting public, whether it's here in the United States or certainly in Britain, as we saw with the Brexit vote, they're tired of that, Nahum. Right. So I think the point is that this isn't a bad thing for us to have these kinds of resolutions and votes because it does put everyone's cards on the table. And I, helps, and I think it helps us move forward. Jake Novak with us, CNBC. Yeah, but there are a couple of points, though, that I think are, uh, are for, first of all, what do you think of the Trump-Haley threat? What did you think of the fact that both the president and the uh, ambassador are, are, are basically telling the countries of the world, you know, we're watching you very closely, and we give you a, many of you a lot of money, and, and we have a lot of things you guys want, and we're going to watch very closely who's voting against us in the U.N. I mean, w- w- I don't think we've ever seen, you know, a threat like that from the United States administration against countries, you know, in that type of forum. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's long, long overdue. I mean, if you want to know one of the biggest issues that is that absolutely exemplifies a dichotomy between Washington, the establishment in Washington, and the rest of the country, a foreign aid has to be the number one issue. I can't think of an issue that I could go down with a polling company up and down this country that would get more of a solid, you know, negative reaction than the words foreign aid. I mean, I think I, think I could get 70% of the American people, which you never get on any poll these days, to say that they would be in favor of cutting foreign aid. And there might be a little bit, you know, a little bit of a difference that they say completely cutting or not. But if I said, I, what if we wanted to cut foreign aid in the next year's budget? I think we would get 70% approval from the American people. But establishment politicians from both parties for many decades have, w- have wanted to suppress that desire of the public so that they can make their own deals, and some of them were for good reasons. But this is long, long overdue, Noham. The fact is the United States, and, and those people who, a lot of people argue, well, foreign aid isn't a big part of our budget. We shouldn't make that discussion as far as balancing our budget. You know, again, that's the thing. It's death from a million cuts when it comes to our budget. Foreign aid is so unpopular. It should be cut in a lot of instances. In some cases, it should be kept. It depends on the country. And this is a great discussion for us to start having. I mean, I 
I can't think of a, of a president, sitting president, you know, candidates have said it in the past, but an actual sitting president saying the idea that foreign aid is going to be up for debate, you, you, on a, even though it's on a case-by-case basis, that's a big deal. And again, that goes beyond the U.N. and beyond Israel. I think this is an American issue that really needs to be addressed. Yeah, it's funny because for those who question the Micronesia love for Israel, <laughs> they always point out that the foreign aid is the key to them. But it's funny, if, if we were to put together a list, I'm not putting you on the spot, I just want your guess. If we're putting together a list of these 128 countries who voted against the U.S., how many of them or what percentage likely are getting some type of foreign aid from the U.S.? It must be the majority of them. Yeah, that, that's more than 60 percent. Absolutely. And that, that's a good guess. And um, and that's not and that's just in the sort of direct programs, you know, that you can basically you could say it's money. Right. Uh, there's other kinds of support. You know, there's there's trade support. There are trade there there are deals where we basically allow countries to trade with us on an evil on an even basis or a fair basis. So it's it's really hard to quantify sometimes in dollars how much aid these countries get from us. And the fact that they're sitting in the UN under U.S. protection, don't forget that. No, no, I mean you know between between the free parking and everything else, there, yeah. there's a cost to the United States for all of that. No question about that. Jake Novak is with us, senior. Editorial columnist CNBC talking about the UN vote yesterday. The um, one of the things that is is um, <laughs> I shouldn't say difficult for me to understand because I, I'm too old to say that, and I've been watching the news for too many years. But we we see the outreach that's being done not only from Israel to, for instance, African nations, but let's say, for example, African nations to Israel, right? Those who are begging Israel for their technology, those who are begging Israel for the prime minister to visit, to acknowledge them, to start trade deals, to to advance them into the 21st century. And yet these countries, you know, who are dying for some type of commitment from Israel, uh, and many of them are already enjoying it, as we know, as we've seen, you know, the prime minister visit and we've seen the type of relationships that are being formed. They they cannot get the wherewithal to be outspoken in defense of Israel. Well, you know, this is uh, something that is one of those very, very frustrating things about Africa. They are absolutely moving forward economically. And Africa is is really the place to, to be if you're looking for explosive economic growth and real modernization over the next few decades. But their governments are corrupt. <laughs> they just are. I mean, I, I urge everyone listening to pick up a relatively short book by a woman named Ambiza Moyo. It's called Dead Aid. And her book talks about how African government, the African people are quite innovative. They are really moving in the right direction, but their governments undercut them every time. And the problem is Western governments deal with the, with the African governments first and not with individual business people and not with individuals, uh, just regular people in Africa. So money gets stolen. Uh, decisions get made for silly personal political reasons that may have nothing to do with anything going on in the rest of their country. And I think we're seeing that in the U.N. very regularly. But it's a fantastic book, and it really explains why. Almost every effort the United States and the West has made to help Africa has failed because of government corruption. And for some reason, Africa is still making some strides. But boy, they have to get a, clear such a hurdle with, with the, you know corrupt leadership in almost every one of them. So countries. even with Israel's help and even with them advancing certain countries uh, with technology, etc., until you get past the hurdle you just described, uh, not much progress is going to be made. Yeah, we're going to need new leadership in some of these countries. And when we start seeing people coming from maybe different tribes, literally different tribes, or certainly different political groups taking over and, and winning elections or otherwise getting control, then maybe we can start re- readdress it. But I just wouldn't expect help in the U.N. right now uh, because it's just it's a long tradition of political corruption, even when they're making better decisions behind the scenes. You know, the U.N. might want to take up an emergency session about that corruption uh, situation, you know. <laughs> 
Yeah, good luck with that. They're spending a lot of time in emergency sessions about Israel. I can tell you that much. Jake Novak on the telephone, CNBC. Um, all right, so now it's uh, almost one year. I mean, we're talking about uh, uh, 2017, the first year of the Trump administration. Uh, we know what happened with the um, with his statements about Israel and Jerusalem and the um, uh, proposed move, the actual uh, start uh, to the move of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. We see what happened this week with the uh, Rabashkin uh, sentence commutation, which uh, got um, tremendous reaction in the Jewish world, certainly in certain segments of the Jewish world. And many of us felt that, um, if not if not almost everybody, felt that at least uh, when it comes to justice that uh, uh, he had been given a, uh, a much too harsh of a sentence. How would you evaluate on those issues and uh, and otherwise, how would you evaluate the Trump's uh, the first year of the Trump administration vis-a-vis Israel and the Jewish people? Well, I think it's been very, very good. Um, the good things are these policies that are that mean a lot more than any kind of stray comment that he may or may not have made, and we'll get to that in a second. But the the recognition of Jerusalem, as I as I wrote about for CNBC, and I've said many times, is a very very big step forward for peace. Because in the history of the of the Middle East, when the Arabs are faced with the rock solid truth that not only that Israel is here to stay, but the United States support for Israel is very very strong, that's when we get peace. That's when we got peace with Egypt. That's when we got peace with Jordan. And and I think that's been a big part of this cold peace or, or cooperation where you know Israel's getting with Saudi Arabia. So that was a tremendous tremendous move, not just for the Jewish people in Israel, but for all of the Middle East. The the Rubashkin thing is, I don't think, as big a, a, a message to the whole Jewish world or even a big message on policy at all. I think this is just a case of Trump actually being aware of this particular case because of certain connections that he has personally. And uh, I couldn't agree more. I, I, you know, there's no doubt that Rubashkin was guilty of just about every single crime that he was accused of. But 27 years for what amounted to $27 million of fraud was ridiculously oppressive. It was more than Jeff Skilling of Enron got, more than Bernie Evers of WorldCom got. These were much bigger frauds. These had much bigger economic impact. And his, and his sentence deserved to be commuted. I don't really think there's a big message there, but it was. But you know, it's, it's just good to see a president using the, his clemency powers for a good reason and not to make a big political statement. Because you know, when they do that, they wait until their last year in office and people kind of rot in jail while right. they're waiting to make their, their, their decision. So I think that in general, you've seen a very, very good um, response to certain Jewish issues and Israel issues. And of course, the one misstep was a silly statement he made about this incredibly ridiculous event in Charlottesville earlier this year where a, a manufactured white supremacist march went on. The tr- president was informed that there were some people involved in that march who were not white supremacists but were just in favor of free speech. And then he made this unfortunate comment that some very fine people were marching in that. And, of course, the news media and everyone else decided to miss. Uh, quote him as saying, white supremacists are very fine people, which was really tremendous dishonesty by the news media. The USA Today made the same uh, deliberate mistake uh, just a couple weeks ago in one of their editorials. It was really, really disgusting. But let's not absolve President Trump completely from, from, from that issue. He really needs to be more careful uh, with these kinds of statements because they get misconstrued sometimes uh, on purpose. But in general, this has been more than I think any major Jewish organization or Jewish community could have asked for in this first year. And if, um, and if I would have asked you a year ago before the inauguration, I don't think anybody could have predicted this type of relationship that the president seems to be having with the Jewish world. 
No, because he was he was a little bit coy about American relations with Israel during the campaign. I mean, right. The moments where he just said, like, well, maybe we need to be a little bit more even-handed, and it was right. just such a depressing statement for him to say. And clearly, it was just another one of those off-the-cuff, careless mista- uh, you know, comments that he makes sometimes. And that's frustrating, because presidential messaging power is very, very important. You can't let a president off the hook for saying a stray comment. You just can never do that. So this is a problem that he needs to get uh, controlled. However, I'm in the camp that says actions speak louder than words, even when it's a president, because it's close, <laughs> because presidents' words sometimes are actions. But his actions have been much more important than a stray mistake here and there in his comments. Jake Novak is with us. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Jake Novak is senior editorial columnist for CNBC. What do you think of the uh, tax bill? You know, I loved the tax bill on the business side. Uh, the corporate tax cut, I think, is long overdue. That was very, very f- straightforward and clear. And uh, it got better and better on the small business side of things. Uh, basically, small business is getting an even bigger tax cut. And as many of us know, it's really small business that does all the hiring. I know we're getting a lot of headlines right now about companies giving bonuses and raises, big corporations like right. AT&T and Boeing giving big corporations uh, you know, bonuses and raises. Uh, that'll pot- probably peter out. But job creation comes from small businesses in this country, and they're getting a big tax cut. I don't love every part of the individual tax cut, but that's, just not, that's not just because I live in New York and there's some, there's some trade-offs New Yorkers and people in New Jersey and, and California are going to have to deal with. The only reason why I don't love the individual part as much is because I'm a strong believer in cutting taxes for everyone across the board by the same percentage, and then you make up the lost revenue with, cut, with cutting spending. This right. is the Ronald Reagan um, recipe that works so well, uh, and I, I just don't understand why conservatives or any Republican can't get behind that. Actually, I do understand it. It's a question of basically they, they cannot get away from rewarding certain friends and punishing certain enemies in their policy. That's disappointing. But even the individual tax cut part of it is not all bad. There's some very good things in it. I think middle class people who don't itemize their taxes and don't live in, in, in blue states like, like us uh, are going to do very well on this. And honestly, it's a little bit elitist of those of us in New York who make a certain amount of money and live in a certain type of house to get all in a twist over the fact that, you know, a single mother in the middle of the country who makes forty or $50,000 a year is going to get a big tax cut in the percentage of her earning. So before we start castigating the president over this kind of thing, we need to be very clear that this is basically for most people a tax cut, and that's a good thing. Uh, so you do agree then when I say that the, uh, the only, that the most recent real tax cut in this country was the Reagan tax cut? Yeah. I mean, we got a very, we got very brief tax cuts under President George W. Bush. And then the major, major tax cut that was not for, you know, again, I agree with you, not a real tax cut because it really didn't hit a lot of people, but it hit the big corporations and it hit big uh, Wall Street firms, was the capital gains tax that Bill Clinton agreed to pretty much under the gun with Newt Gingrich in 1996 and went into effect in 1997. And that's what started the explosion of of Wall Street at that time. Um, But that doesn't affect everybody. This is the first really across the board middle class kind of thing. We have not seen that for a long time. One of the things that I've loved so much about this, the only thing that I think is 100% fantastic on the individual side is the doubling of the standard deduction for people who don't itemize. And listen, you and I probably itemize. I'm not going to make an assumption about you, but I certainly itemize. It doesn't seem like a big boost to us, but most people in America itemize their taxes, and they're getting a double uh, double of their standard deduction. And that's the first, and you're right, first time since Reagan, since people like that have seen something really visible in in their taxes. Yeah, those of us affiliated with foundations, we take that as welcome news, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, how many people at the holiday parties are asking you what Bitcoin is all about? 
Well, you know, this is a very interesting thing. I, so I've written about Bitcoin a lot. And, you know, when you write about Bitcoin, you get a massive army of people on social media <laughs> who basically either want to kill you or sometimes they want to make you a god. And, and so I kind of... Uh, I, I, they were kind of confused about what to do with me because I, around the time that uh, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon and other people were saying Bitcoin was worthless, I came out very much pushing against that. I believe Bitcoin has a tremendous amount of value. I just think that a, tr- a good percentage of its value is connected to, unfortunately, it's the criminal activity that, that it spawns. People can easily launder money with Bitcoin. They can get anonymity from Bitcoin. I think that this attribute, this this basically is, a, I would say, 30, 40, maybe even 50 percent of its value, but it's still very valuable. I mean, geez, if you say if you're going to slash 50% off of Bitcoin where it's trading right now, and by the way, it changes every second, but you're still talking about six, seven thousand dollars, even if you uh, per Bitcoin, even if you slash it by 50%. What, what is it right now? Around thirteen thousand? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a joke about a kid who asks his father for Hanukkah for a Bitcoin, and he says, "Listen, I don't have fifteen thousand dollars. What do you need sixteen thousand dollars for? Twelve thousand five hundred dollars? I don't have right now. I mean, <laughs> in, in the course of three seconds, it changes. Because the but, reason um, I'm the reason I I'm still at, think it's very valuable. The reason I I'm do. asking for the number right now is we're sitting on the twenty second of December. And, it, and even people who know nothing about economics like myself always, always have been told that January 1st of any year um, usually creates some type of change and usually a change in the downward direction. Is it possible that Bitcoin will just collapse uh, once the uh, new year is with us? I don't think it'll completely collapse, but we might see it back down in the single digits, you know, single doubt below ten thousand. We right. might see that, but I do think that inherently it has a tremendous amount of value. It will become a new commodity in the in the ways that we think of oil, in the ways we think of fine art, the ways we think of precious metals, uh, which means that it's not going to be the five hundred, six hundred thousand uh, dollar per Bitcoin thing that some people are predicting. I think that that's unrealistic. I also think that governments are absolutely going to do what they can to crack down on the anonymity and the money laundering connected to it, and that will take away some of its trading value. It just will. But it's still valuable. It's valuable because of its portability. It's valuable for people who do foreign exchange. It's, uh, so it's not going away, but I just don't think that it's going... And I, so I don't think it's going to crash, but I also don't think that this is a chance... You know, Right now, someone's buying, and right now, they shouldn't expect to see the kind of 5,000% increase that people have gotten You know, if they bought it a couple of years ago. Is there an Israeli connection to any of this, to these, uh, to these cryptocurrencies? Uh, boy, who, who would be surprised if there were... If there were yeah, you know, exactly. Absolutely, there must be. <laughs> Um, whether or not, I mean, there, there are some issues. I think, you know, you know, the, 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 that question needs to be answered on two ways. Economically, where I think that there are some things where Israel could have some fantastic advantages in the way that Bitcoin is mined and moved. On the other hand. Israel could face some vulnerabilities because, again, who do you think uses Bitcoin for money laundering a lot of the time? I'm talking about terrorists and other organizations that are hostile to Israel. So it's probably a wash for Israel as far as that's concerned until we get some kind of bigger crackdown from governments on the way that it's being used for nefarious purposes. Uh, finally, Jake Novak, you know, you're, you're surrounded at your office, I would assume, by a lot of people who know a lot about economics. Sure. Uh, and, and I'm curious if I were to take a poll at your holiday party uh, of what, it, what has impressed uh, your colleagues the most from Israel, which uh, which um, uh, company, uh, which um, uh, uh, what's the word startup? You know, which, I don't know if it's Waze or if it's um, Mobile Eye. You know, which is the one where you saw you know people react with awe of what was coming out of Israel. You know, it, not so much over this past year, but, but over my entire tenure, about five and a half years at CNBC, I would have to say it's Mobileye, wow. um, because of the way that major auto companies who don't 
traditionally absorb new technology very quickly. Boy, did we learn that the hard way if you lived in, you know, you grew up in like, like I did in America in the 1970s. Boy, right. did we learn about how American auto companies do not absorb new technology quickly. Right. They still don't do it quickly enough. But Mobileye has been swallowed up by, by American and foreign automakers so quickly. And, of course, you know, now, Nahum, they're moving into the next step. You know, Mobileye has done this outer outside-of-the-car technology right. where they can see. Now they are moving into the inside of the car, which is going to be crucial for self-driving cars. Self-driving cars need to know who's in the car, what they're doing, and when they're doing it. Right. And Mobileye is going to make that possible. It's going to make uh, self-driving cars closer to reality very, you know, very quickly. So I would have to say it's Mobileye. You know, our auto industry uh, reporter here, Phil LeBeau, who's very, very connected with all the transportation industry, uh, has mentions Mobileye all the time. And there was a period a couple of years ago where he was amazed at how quickly the American automakers were working and, and taking on that technology. Interesting. So you essentially, based on, on, on what you said before, uh, you agree that um, not much has changed in the uh, automobile in the uh what is it now? A hundred years, close to a hundred years. Not much not, has changed over the not, years. Not, not enough. Not enough. I mean, it's still um, not as safe as it should be. I mean, even though it's a lot safer. I mean, right. there's still there are still so many parts of of driving that are not the greatest. I think though. You don't want to put. I don't want to put all the blame on the auto industry for that. I think another a big part of it is just the way that we design our roads and design our highways in this country. You know, a lot of people when we talk about infrastructure in this country, they think, oh, the problem is it's, it's falling apart, and that is certainly a problem in certain areas. But the biggest problem is the way they're designed in the first place. For those of us who, who've ever been on the Cross Bronx Expressway, I know a lot of the listeners know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, you could repave that thing every five seconds, and it still wouldn't work right. It's not. So that is a big problem. I mean, automobiles can only do what the roads, you know, what the roads allow. Them to do. Right. And our roads and bridges and everything else like that, even when they're in the best condition, are not designed best for our economy, not designed best for safety, period. And that needs to change. And, and before you know, we get into our trillion-dollar infrastructure re, you know, building program that everyone is promising, we better figure out what's worth keeping and what's not worth keeping before we start fixing stuff that doesn't work. Jake, when's the last time you were in Israel? Uh, a little about ten, more than a year. It's been February, March of 2016. Oh, fairly recently. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that, speaking of Ipsur, that that's a country that is doing some things right and some things wrong when it comes to transportation. I love all the stories about light rail and major rail connections going on in Israel, but Tel Aviv, the streets of Tel Aviv are clogged until late at night, every night. Right. That's a problem. That's not good for the economy. That's not good for, for safety. So, uh, you know, Israel is one of those things where they're doing some things right, some things wrong. I, I, I think they're doing more things right than the United States is in, on, on infrastructure. But every time I see more roads being built in Israel, I'm always thinking, boy, they really need to Think to, think to themselves, do they really need this? Um, so, but but other, everything else, I you know, I was blown away by uh, in a lot of ways. Economically, it is absolutely probably one of the most promising developing countries in the world, no, no doubt about it. Jake, love getting your take on things. Uh, one thing we did learn: very easy to memorize the list of those who voted against the resolution <laughs> in the UN yesterday. Very easy. That's right. I want all <laughs> Yeshiva High School students to uh, to be able to recite that in class after uh, after prayers this morning. Yeah, it shouldn't take much time to learn it. That's for yeah. sure. Thanks so much. A good 2018 to you, and I greatly appreciate you joining me this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. Jake Novak is a senior editorial columnist at CNBC, has a great take on so many wonderful things, all the great news that we hear um, from Israel and the UN and the United States and the economy, et cetera, et cetera. And I thank him for joining us. Uh, those countries against the resolution, here it is, Guatemala, Honduras, Israel, Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Nauru, Palau, Togo, and the United States of America.
That was my conversation with Jake Novak, senior editorial columnist at CNBC. His Twitter handle at Jake Jake NY. Thanks for listening in on this edition of JM Rewind. Album of the week is next, followed by our live lunch between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern time. Keep it right here all day long at the Nahum Siegel Network.